Hello and welcome to the National Academy of Medicine Scholars in Diagnostic Excellence podcast. My name is Michael Palia and I'm a member of the 2022-2023 cohort of scholars and I will be hosting this episode. In terms of my background, I'm an emergency physician and health services researcher at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. My federally funded research program focuses on improving diagnosis of infectious diseases with a particular emphasis on improving antibiotic stewardship using human factors and systems engineering informed interventions. It is my distinct honor to introduce today's guest, Dr. Pascal Carrion, Professor Emerita of the University of Wisconsin-Madison Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering and one of the top patient safety experts in the world. Dr. Carrion is the founding director of the Wisconsin Institute for Healthcare Systems Engineering and led the development of the Systems Engineering Initiative for Patient Safety, a framework that has been utilized by investigators across the world to address healthcare quality dilemmas. Dr. Carrion's research has been funded by the AHRQ, the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, a variety of foundations and private industry. Her accolades are many, but just to highlight a few, she's a fellow of the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society and also a fellow of the International Ergonomics Association, in addition to being a national associate of the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. Me personally, I had the incredible good fortune of having Dr. Carrion as a mentor on my Career Development Award from AHRQ, and I've had the amazing opportunity to learn from her over the past eight years while collaborating on a variety of projects. So without further ado, thank you again for joining me today, Pascal. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to hang out and do a podcast. Well, thank you, Mike. Uh, it's uh, uh, great to be here and, uh, and talk with you about uh, diagnostic safety and a uh, role that uh, different disciplines, including my discipline, uh, can bring to, uh, to that uh, really important issue. Thank you for that uh, kind introduction. Oh, of course, of course, it's my honor. Um, so I'll just jump right into the questions. Uh, we've got a good list here, I think, that we can kind of go through. So just as a very basic introduction, for those who may not know, can you explain just human factors as a discipline and what various methods and approaches that includes? That's a, that's a great question, because actually the name of the discipline, and it is a discipline, people actually can get a master's or uh, a PhD with a focus in uh, human factors. But it's kind of a strange name for, uh, for a discipline, because when people hear human factors, they think well, that has to do with human and human characteristics. And actually, the name of the discipline is sometimes called ergonomics. In many European countries, they use that term. So human factors or ergonomics is the same. Um, and so it, it's an interesting discipline because we have to know a lot about people, about their physical characteristics, how people think, um, uh, how they interact with technologies, how they interact in teams. And so we need a lot of knowledge about people but our discipline is not about changing people or, or recruiting them or selecting them. It's using that knowledge that we have about people in order to design uh, things, to design technologies, tools, processes, uh, teams, um, jobs. Um, and so it's, it's a very interesting uh, discipline. Uh, and you find it in different types of departments in uh, universities. Most of the time, you would find human factors in um, a department of industrial engineering or industrial and systems engineering, so like my department, or in department of psychology. And so that's why very often you hear me talk about human factors engineering um, to emphasize the engineering piece of it, which, you know, as engineers, what we do is we design. And so human factors engineers design things, systems, technologies, uh, but making sure that, that it's good for people. So that's really our objective as a discipline. We have two objectives is um, one, to support what people do, to help them perform. So we call it performance in the sense of helping you um, do things that you're supposed to do. Um, and number two, the second objective that we have is well-being. Um, we want to make sure that we design 
systems um, so that people feel good about uh, their job, about what they do, and they are mm. not stressed and, and hurt um, in, in that process. And so the discipline of human factors or ergonomics is very broad. You know, there are people who specialize in the physical aspects of uh, human factors, so looking at dimensions of devices or places. There are people who specialize in cognitive uh, ergonomics uh, or cognitive human factors, so looking at um, a training program, looking at um, uh, task analysis, cognitive task analysis, to really dig deep in how people think about things, how they make decisions. And the third uh, broad uh, domain of uh, the discipline is organizational or systems ergonomics. And that's where I am. So I'm very interested in designing whole systems, their, their individual pieces, but also their, their interactions. It's a very interesting discipline draws on a lot of social sciences, uh, psychology, sociology, but also business, but also physiology, organizational design, but then with the goal of, of designing, um, designing systems to improve both performance and, uh, and well-being. So I hope I haven't confused people because it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's pretty broad, but it's, it's, a fun, it's a fun discipline. No, I mean, that's incredible. I, I mean, just hearing some of what you said made me think about all the issues we're seeing with burnout right now in, uh, in healthcare and how important it is to think about wellness, you know, when, when we're talking about the healthcare system. And so it's not, it's not only obviously, you know, huge emphasis on patient safety and improving systems, um, designing systems that optimize outcomes and, and processes, but also the provider well-being is such an important piece right now. We're sort of having this epidemic of burnout and, and uh, it's, a, it's a big problem. And I think even the National Academies have recognized that this is a big issue. So it, it's such important work, right? Because it it's, it's kind of covers all, all aspects, 360 of, of the, the healthcare system, right? Yeah, exactly. And so, um, so that's why, I mean, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, diagnostic safety as an important aspect of patient safety. And the way I look at it is how can we design systems to improve diagnostic safety? Um, but that same, like you're saying, that same logic, that same approach can be used to also address clinician burnout. And I was actually the, the co-chair of the committee of the National Academies that looked at clinician burnout. <laughs> An unintentional connection there. And I know you were, you were friends with Dr. Weir's. Bob Weir's as an emergency physician, he's sort of a, a legend, pioneer, or forward thinker in the area of design and safety in the emergency department. And he's he has a great quote where he boils down human factors to quote is it's the study of factors of make that make work easy or hard. <laughs> That's it. You know, so I love that quote because it just so perfectly kind of distills it down. You know, we want to make exactly. the work. I always say, if we could make it easier to do the right thing, that's ultimately we want to build a, a system that it makes it really easy to do the right thing. Exactly. I mean, that's a nice summary. But how can you make it uh, easy for you, you being physicians, nurses, um, receptionists, patients, care partners, how can we make it easy for all of you who are in, in uh, healthcare to do your job and be safe in the, in the process? Awesome. Oh, that's great. How did you become interested specifically in applying this discipline and methodology specifically to healthcare quality issues and, and that application? Because I think that kind of goes way back to the beginning, I guess, of what your your interest was. Yeah. You know, when the um, IOM report on um, on to air human and crossing the quality chasm, so there were actually two reports, when they uh, came out, uh, there there was a lot of attention on, on patient safety. Um, and because of that, there were many opportunities that came up for patient safety research, in particular with uh, AHRQ. Uh, and the, in the early 2000s, AHRQ came up with a number of requests for proposals, including one that was um, um, really innovative. Um, it was a special emphasis or special program uh, for what they call 
DSERPs, Developmental Centers for Education and Research in Patient Safety. And the idea was um, to open that domain of patient safety research to a range of disciplines. Mm -hmm. And so there were actually, I I don't remember exactly the, the number, but let's say 17 or 18 developmental centers that were funded. And actually, Bob Wares was the uh, PI on one of the uh, developmental centers. And we were selected. And it, it was really interesting because we were the only developmental centers that was not located in a medical school, a pharmacy school, or nursing school. It was located in engineering. And so it was kind of a challenge to us to figure out whether um, engineers could bring something unique to, uh, uh, to patient safety. At that time, when we, we got that funding, it, from the very beginning, and you're going to hear that uh, over and over, Mike, and, and you know, um, you know about the importance of interdisciplinary research because you you do it also. Uh, but from the very beginning, our team was highly interdisciplinary. There were physicians, nurses, pharmacists, um, so people like me, new manufacturers, but other uh, also faculty in my department with other um, uh, disciplines within industrial engineering. Um, health services uh, researchers, informatics. Uh, so it was very, uh, very interdisciplinary. So we we got a chance, you know, HRQ with that program gave us a chance to start a program on patient safety. Um, and very early on, our team actually started working on the SIPS model. And uh, we're going to talk more about that. But SIPS stands for Systems Engineering Initiative for Patient Safety. Uh, And so our team developed uh, the model, uh, and then it just bloomed uh, from there. Um, You know, it's been been a wonderful uh, journey. Um, And I'm a lifelong learner and educator. And so working in that area of patient safety um, has just been uh, amazing because I've been able to work with many different collaborators and many different healthcare organizations. Unfortunately, healthcare is, um, has many challenges. Uh, fortunately, we've been invited to address many of those uh, challenges. And so I've done work in a range of environments. Of course, your environment, the emergency department, but also intensive care unit um, in primary care, uh, looking at um, health information technology. And so it's it's been really an interesting uh, journey where different disciplines come together to address patient safety, which is really a, a big and complex problem. And so that's how we started more than uh, more than 20 years ago. Mike, I have to tell you a little story. Oh, I don't sure. know if you've, heard, if you've heard that little story. Because when people ask me, well, when did you become interested in healthcare? Actually, I have two answers. One is, you know, the early 2000 with the IOM reports and, and patient safety research. And the other answer is actually, when I was a PhD student many years ago, my advisor, Mike Smith, was, um, in, uh, he really insisted on all of us uh, who were being trained in human factors to understand the reality of what people do. And so in one of our seminars, uh, it was a small graduate seminar with five or six of, of us, six PhD students. He said uh, to each of us, you're going to go out and observe people in their real environment. And so each of us was assigned to a, uh, to a, different, uh, to a different company and, and uh, a workplace. I was actually sent to what is called the Trauma Life and Support uh, Center, the main intensive care unit at the University of Wisconsin Hospital. So that was a few years ago. So here I was, a young 
a PhD student in industrial engineering, spending hours in the sitting in the little chair <laughs> in an intensive care unit, and that was that was my first experience encounter with uh, healthcare. And you know, all these years, I mean, I've I've done research in all kinds of domains, wow. but all these years. I remember that experience because it was really to me an illustration of the the complexity of of healthcare, the number of things happening, the number of people, the the layout, the physical layout, the devices, the sound, the the noise, and so on. But also, um, I think huge opportunities for people with the kind of skills that I have of trying to to make an improvement. So that's the that's the second story about how I came. That's incredible. One of the things that's been amazing to me with this journey of sort of being exposed to this, I, I think of it as a way of seeing the world. Once you sort of put those glasses on that that you never really see things quite the same way again. And as as clinicians, I think we're very focused on our clinical duties and, and our clinical expertise and, and interacting with the patients. And we, we don't always have the opportunity to step back and kind of see it that way that, that, you know, like an observer just sitting in the corner, uh, watching everything go down. And, and so not only observing, but having that very different lens and in, in the way that you see things happening and you're kind of looking at it from all these different angles. And so, so, you know, I, I've just had a, a taste of that through some of my experiences and working with your team and, and yourself to just sort of see things in a different way. And it's just an incredible lens and you start, you start thinking about things a lot differently. And, and, you know, Mike, this is, you know, this is something that we've really intended to do from the very beginning, uh, from that very first grant that we, we got from AHRQ. One of the objectives was to do something around training and education. And so we developed, our series of short courses. There were things that were offered during the summer. And again, Bob Wears and a number of other physicians, nurses, and pharmacists worked with us on those courses, as well as participating in the education and and research uh, also of many junior clinicians, physician scientists like you, um, as well as clinicians in uh, nursing and pharmacy in, in particular. Um, and so it's, it's been really by design uh, that, um, that we really worked with uh, people like you and, and many of your uh, colleagues um, uh, across a number of, um, uh, number of clinical uh, disciplines to help you think about what your research and to develop different ways of looking at the problem. So that has been really important and that has been really satisfactory to, to see the success of, uh, of people that have worked with us, including you, Mike. So it's, it's been very rewarding uh, career of, uh, as a patient safety researcher, uh, again, since that uh, very first grant from HRQ. Yeah. It, it just kind of blows my mind how at the time it, it was very bold, right, to to house one of these centers at a, in a um, department of engineering. And now, everywhere I go, when I go to meetings at the National Academy or, you know, talk to other high-level researchers and health services, this is almost considered fundamental. And it's, it's like baked in, like, of course, you need to look at it from a systems perspective and think about these things. And, and people are sort of clamoring or trying to find, you know, human factors engineers to work with and, and stuff like that. So, just to hear how far it's come and how at the time it was considered kind of edgy maybe or or like a stretch, you know, and now it's it's very much baked into the DNA of, of health services research. And that's, re- that's really cool. Well, I, I want to get on to the stuff about diagnosis because that's, that's the charge for today. Uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, you were a member of the 2015 Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare IOM Committee, you know, which is now Institute of Medicine, which is now the National Academy of Medicine. And uh, that report, and really that SEEPS model that you, you mentioned that you um, developed was really, when I look at it, is the sort of structural underpinning of the entire report. Can you just give us a little more information about that SEEPS model and where it started? And I know it's gone through you know multiple iterations over time. And then also just your experience working on that really you know foundational report on diagnosis. Uh, so SEEPS, um, S-E-I-P-S. 
Systems Engineering Initiative of Patient Safety. You know, I've heard it pronounced all kinds of different ways, SIPS and whatever. Anyway, we call it SIPS. So, so like I said, it was one of the challenges that we took on with that first grant from AHRQ for that developmental center. Um, and so we got a chance to work on that on that model that was published. The first version was published in 2006 in what used to be uh, a quality and safety in healthcare, which is now BMJ uh, quality and safety. Um, and the the idea really came about when our colleagues um, coming from health services research uh, with people like Maureen Smith, who's a um, uh, national, international expert in uh, measurement of healthcare quality, she would start talking to us about structural process outcome, structural process outcome measures of healthcare quality. And so us on the, on the human factors uh, side, we're looking at that model and thinking, well, you know, st- structure to us sounds very much like the system. And so little by little, what we did is we kind of hijacked that SPO, that structural process outcome uh, model of healthcare quality, of course, uh, developed by Don Abidian. So we kind of hijacked it and, and revised it, plugged in our uh, system model, and that became, uh, that became SIPS, uh, uh, the SIPS model that defines the system the work system with people at the center. Remember, I come from a human factors discipline. Everything is about supporting people uh, in the system. And people do tasks and they use different technologies, all of that in a physical environment uh, and in an organization. And those system elements and their interactions, because remember, it's a system model, so their interactions influence the care process which then produces outcomes. And again, remember what I said earlier about the human factors discipline, we're interested in outcomes of patient safety as well as outcomes of well-being. And then the model has, has uh, important uh, feedback loop that are about learning or adaptation. So the SIPS model has gone through a number of iterations. And so right now I call it the family of SIPS model. And some, so we developed SIPS 2.0 that talks also about what patients do, the work that they do, what clinicians do, and then the collaborations between the two. We also developed SIPS 3.0 that focuses on the, on the patient and their journey to understand what, what does it look like from the patient's perspective. You know, when they come to the, to your emergency room, then they get discharged and then they, um, they go home. So that transition is important to, uh, to consider from a patient safety uh, perspective. And then we have SIPS 101, that's uh, for dissemination. But it's really a family of models. So three is not better than two, two is not better than one. It just depends on what you're interested in. I was invited to join that IOM committee on diagnostic safety. It was a very, I mean, like, you know, participation in in national academies committees is always an amazing, amazing experience. Uh, and I have to say that experience, and I've, I've worked on a number of national academies committees, uh, but that one was particularly enriching and important and, and I think had a, had a big impact. And I think there were a number of key reasons for that. First of all, the committee was highly interdisciplinary. You know, when you th- at, at that time when people were talking about diagnostic errors, very often it was, well, this is the way physicians think about things. So it, it was the cognitive processes. And again, cognitive processes are, are very important. The, the people who put together the committee were very keen about, of course, involving physicians. And there were many different medical uh, specialties were presented in the in the committee, but there were also people. There were a couple of engineers like me, people with a background in in law, in looking at legal issues, looking at health services research, uh, social sciences. So it was highly highly interdisciplinary. So it's not like I was the only engineer in a group of of physicians, which you know happens once in a while. But it was very interdisciplinary. That was just an amazing chair of that committee. John Ball was, I've learned so much 
by working with him on that committee. And then the, the staff of the IOM, in particular, Erin Bello, uh, was just amazing. And so it was a very, very open, open discussion. Um, at that time, a lot of the discussion around diagnostic errors was about contrasting cognitive issues and system issues. And I have to say, I, I, I had a challenge with that distinction because as a human factors person, cognitive processes, the way people think, is not independent of the system in which they function. So it was an interesting journey within the committee to help to bring that perspective to say, you know, first of all, diagnosis is a it's a diagnostic process. I think that was a big, a big piece of that of that report. It's not, you know, just poof, you make a diagnosis. That's not how it goes. Um, it's a process. It's it's a cognitive process. You know, you look for information, you think about it, you integrate it, uh, you come up with a walking diagnosis, and then you go back. So so there is that loop. Um, cognitive a loop of, of cognitive processes inside the the main model of the of the report, and then we um, help people understand that the process is embedded in the system, and so therefore you know it just made sense uh, given that diagnosis is actually a process and that it's embedded in the system. It just made sense. Um, to, to use the SIPS uh, model. Um, and uh, the, the committee then adopted the, the model and, and, you know, transformed it. I mean, it, it's not a straight SIPS model. It's, it's a version that's ad- adapted for uh, the diagnostic process. And then the report was very much organized around the conceptual model that, that we developed. So that's um, that's how it, it it came about. It's really understanding diagnosis as a process and the fact that the process is embedded in the in the system. Yeah, the whole story of those committees and how everything came together, I think, is just fascinating. Probably more than we have time. I would love to dive into that a little more. But you know, I, the way I think of of diagnosis, and I and I think of the work of like cross carry and and sort of type one, type two thinking and, and cognitive biases and, and um, heuristics and all that stuff. And, and I just love that you kind of don't really think of those as siloed out from the, the rest of the work system. And, and I, that's, an, that's a great example of kind of how I see things now with that new lens. You know, I see this sort of the interaction with the technology, right? And, and so we have all these diagnostic tools and, that are available to us. We have the EHR, you know, we're interacting with other people in the system to give us data points about uh, different elements, the, the patient, their caregivers, um, the nurses, you know, so we're, we're synthesizing all this data and trying to have this cognitive process within this, this really complicated work system and, and kind of synthesizing it all together. And I think even, even more now we're hearing about sort of artificial intelligence and these large language models and chat GPT helping physicians with diagnosis uh, you know, there's there's been situations where people are testing it and putting in constellation of symptoms and it's putting out a differential. And so I think more and more we're going to have to be acknowledging and comfortable with the fact that this really is a process that occurs in a complex system with various parts. And, and it's just such a, you know, again, it was like at the time pretty revolutionary or, or you know, forward thinking to to put it in that way. And I think that's one of the reasons why the report has held up so well over time, and it's really relevant, obviously, today. It's been eight years since the report, and uh, what do you think about progress, or where? What is the state of diagnostic safety today? You know, after that report had come out, and yeah. so you know, one of the one of the reasons that uh, the committee was put together is the lack of attention to that area of diagnostic safety. And so Mike Graeber was very instrumental in a number of other people, but I'm mentioning Mark because I think he's, he's been a leader in, uh, in the area of diagnostic safety. And he was also a member of the 
committee that put together the report on improving diagnosis. Uh, but there was really very little attention, which is kind of surprising because in, if you think about patient safety, if you don't have the right diagnosis in the first place, we well, forget the rest. I mean, yeah, you can make a bunch of errors in the way you treat people, but if, if it's a wrong diagnosis or, or the diagnosis de- is delayed, you missed a lot of opportunities to, uh, to provide high quality care. Um, so, so that, that made sense. So, so I think from that perspective, the attention on the issue is a lot, a lot higher than it was uh, eight, ten years ago. One of our recommendations was around research in in diagnostic safety, uh, and that also has uh, has increased. Probably not enough. Right now, we're seeing a lot of uh, requests for proposals, for instance, coming from. Uh, AHRQ that focus on uh, diagnostic uh, safety. So I think there's been a lot of uh, progress. Again, you know that what I mentioned, uh, that that dichotomy between cognitive and system, I don't think, I, I don't care it very much anymore. Or maybe I'm not reading, <laughs> no, <I laughs> I'm agree. reading those things. Uh, but really the idea that those cognitive processes, including what Pat Cross-Carry was talking about, uh, which which is really important research, understanding those cognitive processes, they're embedded in the system. And so we need to understand uh, understand that. The In the report, we put a lot of en- emphasis on patient and the role of patient in the diagnostic process, uh, including in the definition of uh, diagnostic error. Um, so, so not engaging patients uh, in the diagnostic process or not telling them about the diagnosis is part of uh, the definition of diagnostic error. So I think there's been, there's been some uh, improvement. And of course, uh, there could be, we could do more, but I think figuring out how do we include patients in the diagnostic process is more valued and more uh, recognized uh, nowadays. I think there's some discussion about systems and systems uh, thinking, and and you know I'm I'm always very happy to to see that. I think uh, I think there's, there's still a long way <laughs> to go in in that area because sometimes, uh, you know, that's what you said earlier is is you, you had to to learn a different way of looking at things you know it's a different pair of glasses the, the very different way of looking at uh diagnostic safety when you when you think about uh when you think about it from a systems uh perspective and so i think there's some progress i think there's still uh there's still more that we can do you mentioned technologies and you know the issue of how do we design good uh, technologies to support care processes and uh, and improve diagnostic safety. I think we've done some improvement. You mentioned AI, and sometimes I feel we're kind of going mm-hmm. back again. You know, with uh, with uh, what I hear about AI, because it it's very often I I hear where AI is the technology that's going to save us and and solve all of our problems. And you said it earlier. It's more than just using ChatGPT. It's also figuring out who's going to look at the, who's going to look at the uh, data, who's going to make sense of it. Uh, how do we work as a team? How does that fit in the uh, in the in the workflow uh, and so on? So I think uh, I hope we're not going to make the same mm-hmm. mistake with AI as as we made with other forms of health information uh, technology. I think there are areas that that where we still need to do a lot of progress. Um, in the report, we talk a lot about team diagnostic teams, team based care. There's still work that we need to do in in really understanding how all members of the team, and you know, I put the patient and the care partner in the team, sure. uh, how they can work together. Uh, to support uh, diagnostic uh, safety. Um, and, you, you know, Mike, another area that I've been interested in for some time is transitions of care. And, and you know, again, your environment, the ED is, I mean, is in itself is a big transition because you see people coming and going. And so how does that diagnostic process 
um, how can we support that diagnostic process in those uh, transitions of care, not only from the input, but also from the uh, from the output when people get discharged, you know, you might a first diagnosis, but then someone needs to look at it again, or maybe new information comes about. And finally, I think we need to continue making sure that we involved many different disciplines in looking at diagnostic safety. Earlier on, I said the committee that worked on the 2005 report was highly interdisciplinary. We need to continue doing justice to that principle of interdisciplinary, uh, especially in light of issues of um, of health disparities or equities. So bring people who have expertise in ethics, in uh, culture, in a range of social and behavioral uh, sciences in communication. I mean, communicating uncertainty of diagnosis. So, uh, so I think that's one that I'm I'm going to continue pushing really hard uh, because it's uh, it's important for us to take advantage of of that knowledge that's really important for diagnostic safety. No need to reinvent the wheel. Let's bring the experts who have. Uh, important expertise to bring to the topic of diagnostic safety. So that's kind of my pluses, minuses based on on what we did in 2005. Yeah, so it's interesting. You kind of, we might repeat the future, you know, like every new technology has this promise, but if you kind of see it as a a panacea, you know, that it's going to fix all the problems, it, it just, you're sort of losing sight of the fact that this is a very, I just feel like it's such a human, you know, a human centered thing, right? It's like we have real patients, real, real providers. And, um, you know, what, no matter how much technology, it's not going to get away from that part of it, you know, and that, and you need those parts to be considered, especially when you're rolling out a new technology. And I feel like we're, we're sort of jumping quickly ahead without maybe necessarily thinking about all that, how, how it interfaces with all those other elements. One of the things that, that I'm really, become more and more interested in over time is the concept of diagnostic uncertainty. And I feel like that was never something that I ever received training on or education about in any of my, my um, clinical training. And, you know, some investigators have studied this and see that, you know, a good portion of emergency department patients leave without a diagnosis. They just leave with uh, a symptom-based diagnosis. So abdominal pain or what have you. And so how do we communicate that? How do we guide them to the, the best downstream care? And how do we communicate that across transitions? Um, there's a lot of pressure to assign a diagnosis. And that di- what I think of as diagnostic momentum, when you, when you really didn't know exactly what was going on, but you felt pressure to label it as something, th- I'm really fascinated by that. Ways we can change that pressure and that paradigm to make it more acceptable to acknowledge when you don't know and then, and then maybe you do bring in other experts or cross checks with other providers or something to it's you have to humble yourself though to do that and that's that's not necessarily what we're trained to do you know so it's a different way of thinking and and it's got to be a culture change i think in a lot of ways yeah and the, and you know that's not also what many patients may expect from you come on yeah, tell me what I have, you know, and it, well, and so I think it's, it's I, I, I mean, I think you're completely right. I mean, that issue of thinking about diagnosis is a process, but it's, it's also a process that sometimes gets extended over time because lack of information or, you know, um, a second pair of eyes or, or just uh, symptoms are evolving sure. or knowledge is, is evolving. And so, um, and so, I mean, I, I think this is a this is a really important problem. This is a tough one, though, Mike. And I think that that's what I think that whole issue of the patient journey and care transitions to me are really important. But this is really difficult uh, because it's you know it's not just studying or looking at what happens within one care setting. It's already complicated, you know, just looking at at your care setting of the emergency department is pretty <laughs> complicated bit, yeah. for people like me. 
just a little bit. Uh, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's the ED. And then some of your patients go to a skilled nursing facility. And you remember when we were trying to figure out, I mean, what does that mean, a skilled nursing facility? And sometimes they go to assisted living. Sometimes they go home, but then there's a hospital at home. I mean, it gets really complicated. But I think this is so important to try to figure out that temporal dimension, the safety, and, and in particular, the diagnostic safety, and that, that temporal dimension of how the safety evolves and it, and it, and it changes. And, and doing that kind of research, I think, is really important. Tough, but really important. Yeah, it's a big challenge, but I, I'm excited to kind of take it on and, and use the sort of the infectious disease as an exemplar because it has so many ramifications for treatment and, and downstream treatment and, and, it, and it crosses paths with the ICU and general care and all these things. So yeah, so it's an exciting challenge, but it's, I think it is a big, a big uh, challenge. Do you have any tips for clinicians, health services researchers, uh, clinician investigators for a you know, how to engage, how to find um, systems engineers, uh, human factors engineers, and, and if they can find them, how to, how to optimize that synergy, you know, how to best work together as a team uh, when you're kind of bringing those, those multidisciplinary teams together. Yeah. So, you know, I think the first one is, is the motivation. And, you know, the motivation very often from your perspective, it's, it's a problem. So it's a diagnostic error, it's diagnostic momentum, um, and, uh, and then motivation on our side, oh, it's a cool problem to, to look at. Uh, this is something I haven't studied uh, before. So it's, it's, so it's figuring out that match between the problem on the clinical side, on the diagnostic safety side, and then the skills and knowledge on our side. And, you know, I'm... I mentioned earlier that human factors is is a very broad discipline, and and so figuring out what is the what is what are the skills and knowledge that you need from that uh, from that uh, ex, uh, expert, um, and so I mean for instance you you know we talked about how uh, diagnosing um, is a cognitive process. There are people in my discipline that have very, very deep knowledge about cognitive processes. They can do very deep, detailed analysis of decision making. And so maybe that's that's the expertise that's needed. So I think that's the first challenge is figuring out uh, the motivation on on the clinical side and then matching that with the skills and knowledge on on the human factors and systems engineering uh, engineering side. Um, I think the second one, and and you mentioned that earlier, it's you know you have mm-hmm. to be humble, uh, and you know it's well I'm an engineer I'm going to solve your problem. <laughs> if you hear someone like that, it's like no I'm not going to honk with that person. Um, but it's 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 being humble on both sides. You know it's being willing to listen to the other side. You, you know, you've heard me many times. Mike, what are you talking about? I don't understand. Can you explain? And so, yeah, especially with infectious diseases. Um, and so it's, it's you know, being willing to listen and, and learn and being respectful of, of it, uh, each other's expertise. And I think the third aspect, which to me, you know, I'm, I'm French. I'm French and American. And so I've lived all my life in a cross-cultural environment. And I think that kind of research is, is a lot like, in a foreign country, you know, they speak or they speak a different language or they have different habits or they behave differently. And so it's, it's in a way, uh, being aware of, of these uh, cultural uh, differences and figuring out how do we, how do we walk together? Because I'm never going to be a clinician. You're never going to be an engineer, but we've walked together and we've had a, uh, a fruitful collaboration, which I think is the, is the final piece, I think, is being willing to invest in long-term mm-hmm. relationship because it's, it's, not a, it's not an easy fix. It's not, oh, give me the human factors method and then, and then I don't need you an, anymore and I can do it on my own. 
it's it's a lot more than that. So so being willing to invest in that long term relationship uh, and learning from each other. So I think those are probably the four main lessons learned for being uh, doing that kind of collaboration in an effective uh, and impactful manner. No, that's beautiful. I I think the the intellectual curiosity, right, is you know you just really want to learn you know, where the other person's coming from and how they see it. And like I said, it did, it, it does change how you see things as a clinician. And so I think that's the most powerful, just knowing enough to see it differently is, is a huge start in the right direction, right? Cause you're just, yeah. you're just never going to yeah. look at it the yeah. same way yeah. again. And so that, that's, that's incredibly powerful. And, and if you yeah. could have yeah. those collaborations longitudinally, it yeah. really is yeah. great synergy, great team science, you know, and it really kind of takes it to the next level. I'm always curious because when we do these deep dives of a work system and try to solve a particular problem, we always want to have a, a a lens towards dissemination and and successful, you know, widespread implementation of these things to solve bigger bigger problems on scale. How do we, when when it's necessary to do a deep dive to really understand the work system, is there any strategies we should be using to think about? bigger picture things down the line because it, it it almost seems like there's a lot of people working in quality across different siloed you know institutions and a lot of those lessons could be helpful to others but they may not always work out as you thought in a different work system even if it's you know emergency room a versus emergency room b any any thoughts on that in terms of how to how to wrestle with those that kind of tension there around widespread implementation so I have a couple of ideas, um, and I'm just going to plant seeds. I I, um, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I think one is human-centered design. So it's the process that we use to analyze a problem, come up with an intervention, and implement and evaluate it. And then the second one is that concept of learning health system. So human-centered design is really our bread and butter within human factors. You know, it's kind of a version of PDCA or PDSA uh, cycle that you find in QI, except it's our version of it and using our own methods and principles, so principles of what makes for um, a, a good uh, clinical decision support that's going to actually support a diagnostic decision, for instance. So, so within a human-centered design process, participation of the people involved in the diagnostic process, because that's what we're talking about today, is really important. And so it's, you know, the idea of you don't design something without me being part of it. And so that genuine participation where the stakeholders in the process, whether they're physicians, uh, radiologists, patients, care partners, have a say. And there are all kinds of ways of of doing it. And so using using their intrinsic knowledge, their local knowledge in the uh, process of designing an intervention and then implementing it and then learning learning about the implementation, about the intervention that has been implemented, but also learning in the sense of debriefing, of learning, you know, what we call metacognition. And so learning about that process that you just went through, what am I learning about this process that that I can use in other environments because I'm going to work on other projects. So I think from that perspective, for us to figure out how do we more widely disseminate the that human centered design approach and then all of the human factor stuff that can go into it i think that's a, that's a big challenge because like you said you know we can do it in your ed but then there's just not going to be enough of us uh us meaning human factors engineers to be everywhere and so i still think that that there need to be more human factors professionals hired by uh, healthcare organizations. Uh, but I think that's a, that's a big challenge. And so that's a big challenge that we can take at national or international level. So for instance, right now I'm working with the World Health Organization on figuring out um, how do we 
further disseminate human factors knowledge for patient safety at, at the global level. And so, so there's still a lot of work that we need to do there. And then the second idea is that idea of learning health system. And, you know, Mike, you've done research to develop interventions and implement that. This is tough. Uh, this is tough to get it right. And it's, it's, I mean, <laughs> even if you and I walk together, we I still not get it right. Um, because stuff happens. You know, this is the... This is a system, and so systems have emergent properties, and so when you change something, it might go in a direction that you didn't expect. You know, you can do all the planning and all the thinking, stuff just happens. And so figuring out, so knowing that, and knowing that we need to learn, and then and then use that learning to improve the system uh, is really important. So, so that I'm, I'm a big fan of the learning health system. And I think human factors to me should be part of, of any infrastructure for learning health system. And I know you're doing it, you know, in, in your, uh, in your department of emergency medicine, I think that's a, that's a big direction that, uh, that you are all taking and figuring out how do we embed manufacturers, researchers and professionals in uh, learning health systems. I think that's, uh, that's another big uh, avenue that we need to explore. With good design in a rigorous design, I feel like it's a good foundation, right? That others can build on and adapt maybe to their local setting. Or they can, you know, so it's, it's, it's got strong, the bones are good. You know, the foundation of it is strong because it was designed with the, with the end users involved in it with these uh, comprehensive principles. And so, yeah, you might have to adapt it. That's what I think of it as, you know, it's like, yeah, you have to do local adaptation and, and whatnot, but, but um, at least you're starting strong. Yeah, be willing to, to learn and, and to realize, hey, I didn't do it completely right this way and 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 then i'm going to improve it but then learn in the learning uh you know that double loop uh learning that chris Algaris was talking about years ago uh making sure that uh, uh that we learn so that the next projects will be done better awesome all right well i think we're just about at time so i'm going to wrap up but pascal thank you so much for taking the time to this interview uh for the national academy of medicine scholars and diagnostic excellence program it's always a pleasure to speak with you. I always learn so much. It's just such a cool opportunity. Um, and I really know that the current and future scholars will benefit greatly from your perspectives as a pioneer in this area. So thank you again. I, kn I know it's uh, you're incredibly busy. So thank you and appreciate it. Thank you, Mike.